Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Bristol, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Adam Cooper about the fourth edition of Anthropology and Anthropologists, the British School in the 20th Century. Hello, my name is Jeff Bristol, and I'm here today with Professor Adam Cooper, who is a centennial professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science and a uh, visiting professor at Boston University, where I am also a graduate student. Today, we'll be talking about uh, Adam's, uh, the fourth edition of uh, Professor Cooper's book, Anthropology and Anthropologists, the British School in the 20th Century, which is uh, probably one of the best books about Uh, one of the most important um, schools in anthropological thought. So, uh, Professor Cooper, I was wondering if you might tell us a bit about your background and um, what brought you into anthropology. Right. Um, Thank you very much for um, setting this talk up. I was brought up in South Africa and um, went to do my first degree in a South African university, University of Vardisrand, and this was in the middle of the apartheid period. It was politically very fraught, race relations very difficult, um, a lot of uh, uh, political movements trying to f- figure out how to deal with the, with the society. And the only department in the university which seemed to me to be dealing with the situation in South Africa, the realities of South Africa, was the Department of Social Anthropology. Um, so I checked in with them. I, I should also say that an aunt of mine was an anthropologist, and she had been very engaged in, in um, also in political issues in South Africa. So that's really how I came into to anthropology. And I was fascinated because it began to tell me all sorts of things about the country that I was brought up in, but which I... I didn't really understand, and especially among the people living on the other side of the race boundary, um, what were their histories, what were their lives like, what were their their problems. So that that was my my background. I then decided to go and do a PhD. I went to to Cambridge, and... um, there I found anthropology much less politicized, of course, than in South Africa. But it had a much broader sweep because the other graduate students, the faculty, had done their fieldwork, had done their research all over the world, in Latin America, in Oceania, in India, um, Madagascar. And so the conversations were much broader and much more theoretically driven than the anthropology I had been brought up in South Africa. And as you said in your introduction, this was a very specific school of anthropology that had developed in Britain, which was a very sociological 
kind of school. And it was also very tied up historically uh, with the British Empire. And so it had a dimension of engagement with administrative problems, with missionaries, and, and, and so forth. So that's the yeah. background. That's how I into it. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Well, well thank you. And, and just a, a quick question. So I was wondering, uh, this is not necessarily directly related to the book, but it is kind of in the vein. W- what would you say were the, some of the differences, um, more specifically, between the anthropology that was being done in South Africa and what you found in um, in Britain? I know you mentioned that part of it was a theoretical difference, but but and a geographical interest. But what, what did that some of some of that mean in in, in consequence? Well, there was a much deeper and, and more troubling um, issue in South Africa. Because in South Africa, you had um, the English language universities and the Afrikaans language universities, Dutch-speaking universities, and the Afrikaans-speaking universities were very tied up with the government. And the English language universities were centres generally of opposition to the government. Now, the government policy apartheid dealing with the African population uh, by what they called separate development. So the idea was to keep uh, the majority of the African population in reservations and ideally have them live some kind of neo-traditional way of life. And unfortunately, so far as the government was concerned, you had to have a lot of African workers in the cities as well, which was a great problem for them. But their anthropology idealized this traditional way of life and suggested that this was really what the people themselves would want to develop their own culture. Whereas in the English language universities, you had the view that, in fact, for a century by then almost, the African population had been completely integrated, although in a very unfavorable situation, in a modernizing, industrializing um, society very unequal one, very uh, politically disturbed one, and that the way in which families were organized, people made livings, migrant labor was undertaken and so forth, could only be understood in terms of the national political situation, not in terms of some deep historical tradition. So those were two kinds of anthropology. And in the English-speaking universities, we were very engaged in this anthropology of the present, which was a political interpretation of how things were going. That's very interesting. So it kind of uh, reminds me of one of the distinctions you bring up in your book about um, uh, the difference between applied anthropology um, and maybe the tensions between applied anthropology and the theoretical kind of anthropology that was um, popular, more popular in Britain at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly the British anthropologists generally look down on applied anthropology, which in their experience was anthropology serving local colonial governments. They were not against it generally for political reasons, some were. They were against it because it didn't seem to them intellectually very interesting. There was a slight, it was a different uh, take on, on it from what you had in South Africa, of course. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. All right. So and uh, talking about I know you have an interesting story about your relationship with this book, Anthropology and Anthropologists, which, as I mentioned, is now in its fourth edition. And um, 
I know you've done, uh, you did some considerable revisions between the third and the fourth edition. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, why did you come to write this book and how has it kind of evolved through uh, the different editions that you've written of it? Right. Well, first of all, I've got to make the point that when I came as a graduate student to Cambridge in 1962, some time ago, uh, British anthropology was a very small uh, discipline. It was only taught in about 10 universities. Uh, there weren't more than about 100 professional anthropologists in the UK. And it was um, very strongly uh, driven by a, a particular paradigm. Uh, on the fieldwork side, Malinowski, being the founding father of one tradition of anthropology, had started this uh, tradition of doing fieldwork, long-term fieldwork in the vernacular language, living as far as possible in member of, as a member of the community to try and understand how things worked in the present, how people were living. Um, so that was part of the paradigm. But the other was a model of what kind of societies we were studying. And these were imagined to be tribal societies which were organized largely on the basis of chiefship on the political level and kinship groups on the social level. So you had a, a, a paradigm of how to do the fieldwork and what kind of fieldwork it should be in what kind of societies. It was a very, it was a very organized uh, picture that, that we were given. And that really lasted for a while, but it was beginning to break up. It was beginning to break up because it had made a lot of sense for people doing sociological research and fieldwork in British colonies, particularly in Africa. It made less sense in the 1960s as these colonies became independent and the whole political structure and economic structure began to change. This was a big challenge. But I was brought up in the old school. And in fact, I was one of the last anthropologists to do fieldwork in what was still a British colony, the British Tibetan Land Protectorate. I did fieldwork there between 1963 and 1966. And in 1966, it became independent, one of the last British African colonies to become independent. And then after I finished my PhD, I went and taught at Makerere University in Uganda. And there, this was a post-colonial situation, and the African students were very ready to challenge and debate about whether anthropology was a colonial discipline, how it should be studied now, what relevance it had for an independent Africa. So I was entering anthropology at this period, British anthropologist's period of transition from a colonial to a neo-colonial, post-colonial, situation. I came back to London University in 1970 to begin teaching there. And a couple of years later, one of the older professors said he'd been asked to edit a series in anthropology, introducing anthropology for Penguin Books. Would I write a history of British anthropology? So I had no idea that this was coming up. I'd never done any research on this. I'd never even really thought about it very much. But it was irresistible. So I agreed. And I began to put together 
um, this first book on modern British anthropology. Um, flying blind, because there were no other people really working on it. Uh, nobody had been... Later, people began to publish memoirs and so on, but by this stage, there weren't any. Uh, the first archives were only beginning to be assembled, and most of them were still closed. So I talked to senior colleagues, and I went through the journals and main monographs and uh, then began to sort of put together a picture of what I understood the discipline to have been about in the previous 50, 60 years, and wrote the book, which I also had to write in a great hurry because within a year I was going out to do another field study. And uh, and so so that's the first edition. So uh, there's been four editions now. So well, right. what's kind of motivated you to keep writing about this story, and and what have you changed as uh, time has gone on? And uh, some people who maybe were with us when you wrote the first edition have uh, have uh, passed on. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, well. There was big uh, controversy about the book when it came out. I mean, first of all, it was controversy because um, a lot of the older colleagues were approaching retirement, and a lot of them thought that, oh, when I retire, I'll write a general book on British social anthropology. And here was this upstart uh, doing it, doing it first, and doing it with Penguin Books, which was um, obviously going to mean that it was widely diffused. There was that, but there was also the feeling that uh, the discipline was in transition. Um, there were a lot of retirements of senior people in the 60s. And as I say, the colonial situation had, had completely changed. And the British universities were changing. Um, there was this wave of interest in the social sciences, particularly in sociology, which was challenging to the anthropologists. So there was an unsettled feeling. And I realized after the book had come out, after all the controversies began to die down, that I had written really a sort of obituary notice for a whole generation of British social anthropology. And that something new was about to begin. And um, so I was writing, I was writing about something which was almost passing. And nevertheless, the book sold well and kept going, selling pretty well for 10 years or so. And then Penguin Books said, well, we're not selling enough books anymore. Uh, you, can have it, you can have it back. And so I placed it with another publisher, with Rutledge. And they said, well, uh, you must bring it up to date. So that was the first revision. And this first revision, I made this point that I'm making to you now that Really, I was talking about a kind of anthropology, a tradition of anthropology, which was more or less petering out by the time I wrote the book in the 1960s, and that a whole lot of new kinds of influences were, um, were, were coming in. So the second edition tries to bring it up to date, opens the, the image of British social anthropology a bit to, to in include all, the, all these other things that are happening. Ten years later, or 15 years later, or something like that, 
the publisher said, well, you know, maybe it needs to be freshened up a bit. New edition. Bring it up to date. By then, quite a lot of other people had begun to publish um, in on British social anthropology. There were some biographies of major figures, a brilliant biography of Malinowski, um, but also of other figures. A number of people had published memoirs and also several other historians of science and a couple of anthropologists had begun to write essays or even monographs on aspects of British anthropology and its tradition. So I had a lot a lot of new material, a lot of new stuff, some issues I'd, of course, had to change my mind, new things to come up. But what I'd realized then more than I had before was the weight of the colonial context for the anthropologists working in that period, 1920s to 1960s. Um, and I hadn't really, I think, appreciated the importance of this contextualization. Not that they were all colonialists or imperialists. On the contrary, a lot of them were very anti-imperialist, very anti-colonial from all sorts of points of view. But their experience of Africa and of Oceania, um, to a certain extent of uh, Sri Lanka and Pakistan and other, other parts of the world, was an experience which was embedded in a colonial context. It was very specific, and I, I, I brought this out much more, come clearer to me, and more research had been done, which I found helpful. So that, that's better in the third edition. And the fourth edition, uh, <laughs> I, what happened was that I reread the third edition at some stage. I must have been teaching it or something. And I was very dissatisfied. There were all sorts of things that it seemed to me I hadn't really done properly or hadn't written well enough or had left out. And so, um, egged on again by my editor, I did this fourth edition, which you've just read. Yeah, well, and, and it's really great. And so, um, so we can, I, I think it'd be great now that we've kind of heard the story about it to dig into a bit of what you, what you talk about. I think particularly interesting to me and what you've just mentioned is this tension, which you also talk quite a bit about in the book between sociology and anthropology. And, you know, of course, on the American side, uh, we often, I think, I don't know if we would quite describe it as being intention, but sometimes sociologists and anthropologists are a little confused even about the difference. But I, I gather that there was a very strong methodological distinction. So I guess that's maybe at the end, but should kind of with our eye of getting there, I was wondering if you kind of describe what makes the British school of social anthropology distinctive and um, what was its kind of trajectory over time? Well, the British school uh, was very, very distant from what was happening in much of American anthropology for much of this period because it had uh, the sociological bias. So it was uh, social and political structures and to certain extent economic structures were central. Whereas in American anthropology, uh, the emphasis was generally on cultural traditions and cultural history in the Boas tradition, partly because American anthropologists until really the end of World War II were doing fieldwork very largely in Indian reservations in the United States very specific situation. 
But after World War II, American anthropologists were drawn into the whole development, nation-building um, uh, wave, uh, which uh, which happened in the with with the end of colonialism and the development of of a new a new theory of how should these societies develop politically and economically. The United States was very engaged in this because, of course, it became a big issue in the Cold War as these former colonies became areas of competition ideologically but also politically between the Soviet Union and uh, and the West, particularly the United States. So in the 1950s, 1960s, a lot of American anthropologists were drawn into this much more social science kind of anthropology. And so this is a period where the British and the American anthropologists are are much more engaged with each other and doing very very similar things. Um, That breaks down again in the the 1970s when there's a reaction in American anthropology and people go back to now a much more purist, uh, cultural, idealist kind of uh, uh, anthropological picture where you're interested in what people think and, and their rituals and um, their, their, their myths, their, their artic, artistic productions, rather than their political and economic structures or family structures. I think that, that was a consequence of the Vietnam War and the disillusionment of a lot of um, American academics in this uh, collaboration with, uh, with, with governments in uh, the U.S. government in, um, internationally. In Britain, the movement is in some ways similar because the sociological, political kind of studies that, that have been marked, been the trademark of British um, anthropology, begin to give way to also very cultural uh, interests, interests in religion, interests in ideological structures. And this is influenced for a number of anthropologists, not all British anthropologists at the time, uh, by what was happening in French anthropology, and in particularly two very major figures in French anthropology from the 1950s and 1960s, Claude Lévi-Strauss and Louis Dumont, both of whom are really developing an a cultural anthropology, much, uh, much more than a sociological anthropology. So, does that make sense? No, no, it, it absolutely does. And I was wondering if you could uh, describe exactly. So, I think you know, especially the most anthropology you've mentioned now has kind of focused more on this uh, cultural anthropology, researching. Uh, we see this like the anthropology of morality. Uh, things like this, you know, uh, kind of a, a bend toward understanding those things. I think less familiar is the concept of a sociological anthropology, which I think is sometimes given unfortunate short shrift, although I think it's coming back. So I was wondering, could you delve a little more deeply into what do you mean when you say a sociological anthropology? What, what does an anthropology that's more concerned with structure than culture, for example, look like? Yeah, um, it's not just structured, it engages uh, with uh, political, economic, and social structures and forces. So it's, it's, uh, it's very much uh, in the 
same arena as uh, sociology, political science, um, and, and, and economics. It's very striking. Um, we now have a European Association of Social Anthropologists started 30 years ago, and I go to their biannual meetings always. And what's striking is that this Franco, this French-British anthropology, the anthropology in the tradition of Emile Durkheim and Alonowski and Radcliffe Brown, has in one way become the anthropological tradition for the whole of, of Europe, but it's also changed because it is dealing with problems of race, immigration, um, uh, political um, uh, nationalism, um, economic uh, changes, uh, desperately important economic changes in rural Africa, rural Latin America, and so on and so forth. So these are the things that interest uh, these uh, young anthropologists, these young European anthropologists, rather than uh, questions of simply how do people um, see and symbolize, think and symbolize uh, their ideas in the world. It's not so much about interpretation as in the tradition of Clifford Geertz. It's more trying to understand the objective constraints and processes of social life. Now, when I say this, I'm simplifying enormously because within Europe you also have uh, quite a strong idealist uh, tendency as well. So that's certainly there. But British social anthropology is now part of a European social anthropology, which seems to me different in emphasis from American anthropology, partly because it is more engaged with uh, social and political theory and social and political institutions. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think it's interesting, though. I notice among my own generation of anthropologists, I think uh, a begin to shift back towards a concern with um, kind of some of the old structural models of anthropology that you're discussing, looking at political economy and that kind of thing. And I think that's something you talk about in the book is this kind of um, increasing cosmopolitanism among anthropologists that uh, you mentioned it in your description of the history earlier of the discipline where Americans leave their kind of own provincial studies in on American Indian reservations. Uh, the British kind of had their own provincialism in a way and studying in their colonies. And so, uh, and so they expanded even as you discussed in the book, starting to come back home um, and looking at things that traditionally were considered the realm of sociologists so um, I know you kind of already talked a little bit about it, but what what did this cosmopolitanization mean for British social anthropology and, and even for, for other forms of anthropology um, in the world? Well, when, when I talk about a cosmopolitan anthropology, it, it has that dimension that um, the, 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 the national schools of anthropology are spreading their interests more broadly. But... I'm more interested in another aspect of this cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism, which is that these national schools of anthropology, which were so important in the as late as the 60s and 70s, now seem to be to be much more open 
much more um, open to each other, but also much more open to other disciplines. So there's a really a, an interdisciplinary and international kind of thinking in anthropology increasingly, which I don't think was there as strongly a generation ago. You're absolutely right. And I think, uh, I don't know if you would necessarily agree with this point, but I think perhaps some of that had to do with the um, that kind of narrow focus with the uh, kinds of fieldwork traditions um, that developed early in British social anthropology that particularly are associated with Malinowski that are focused on kind of examining very deeply uh, a kind of one particular set of people. So I was wondering um, if you could tell me First, what would you think about that statement? And could you describe what Malinowski and the kind of Malinowski method of fieldwork is uh, for people who might not be familiar with it? Right. Um, it's a very interesting, very interesting to look back and to, to, to try and rethink what Malinowski did. I'm more and more impressed. Actually, it's one of the things that if, if somebody had the time to trace through these four editions of the book, Malinowski becomes a much more uh, admired figure, and much, in my view, a much more influential figure than I'd realized really when I did the first edition because I was brought up by anthropologists in the school of Radcliffe Brown, which was a, a rival school in, in Britain at the time. Malinowski breaks through a very important wall in anthropological fieldwork because he says you can't rely on what people tell you. Working with informants is going to provide a certain kind of information. It's going to provide information, if you like, about the official story. But everybody, Malinowski says, is actually playing for personal advantage or for clan advantage or local advantage. And they realize that you can game the system. They realize that you can strategize. They don't feel that they are absolutely fixed by some kind of religion or some kind of tradition in what they do. And Malinowski said, that's what you've got to look at. You've got to look at the actual choices people are making in order to further their own interests. Because that'll teach you, first of all, what people are really doing. And what they're telling you is actually part of this strategizing because they're telling they're trying to influence the way you're going to regard them and their choices are also what is really shaping the future the malinowski shifts anthropology from what say franz Boas was doing in the united states what other anthropologists had done which was to collect the traditions to collect the ideas to collect the folk tales to collect the statements of how the rituals should be carried out. And Malinowski says, no, you've got to study the action. You've got to study how things, how things are going. But there's a very interesting, um, something very interesting is missing in what Malinowski does here, because he gives you this, these wonderful accounts of the Trobian Islands, where he did fieldwork during World War I, um, these are islands off the coast of New Guinea. Um, he gives you wonderful pictures of the way in which people are organizing, dealing with, competing in, in daily life. 
But he leaves out a crucial dimension, which is that this was a colony. This was a colonial situation. These islands were ruled by um, a British administrator. Now, in the 1930s, when Malinowski is teaching at the London School of Economics and building up his school, um, he suddenly uh, sees British colonies are entering a new phase of, um, this is after the Great Depression, of economic development, which necessitates political change. And the colonial office in Britain is very interested in this, is trying to get anthropologists or somebody, sorry, economists, somebody to go and find out how are things changing, how are they developing, what kind of policies will help in this. And um, in fact, the Rockefeller Foundation in the United States, which becomes very interested in the 1930s in what they call race relations in the United States, also, as an extension of this, becomes interested in change in Africa. So they come up with grants for research in Africa. Malinowski gets a whole package of these fellowships, which he can now use to employ people to do fieldwork, but they have to do fieldwork not in the Pacific, where he did fieldwork, but in Africa, which is what the Colonial Office and the Rockefeller Foundation was interested in. And they have to do studies which engage with real political and economic uh, forces, and therefore they have to include the colonial context. Malinowski now, in the 1930s, changes his anthropology again and becomes engaged, he says, with the study of the changing, the changing African. Then just at the beginning, just before World War II breaks out, he goes to Yale um, on uh, a sabbatical fellowship, War breaks out, he's stuck there, and he begins to do fieldwork in Mexico, which again is a completely different kind of context, demanding a very different kind of fieldwork. He's studying markets in Mexico. And unfortunately, at a very young age, in his early 50s, while he's still uh, finishing some of this Mexican work, he has a sudden heart attack and dies. So he's had a very short career, but he's gone through different stages, reacting to changes in the uh, kinds of societies to which he was exposed. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting um, in that story how you can see uh, on on all both sides of the Atlantic anthropology as a discipline reacting in some ways to domestic concerns, um, and which is interesting because you think of anthropologists always going abroad, particularly maybe to societies that don't seem that important in the you know. Uh, grand political or economic scheme of things, but as you as you've mentioned, grant money and uh, and all these other concerns all, often often push people into these different corners of the world and and change really what the possibility of field work is. Absolutely, yes, absolutely, and that's often neglected because, of course, that's not really the story of academic uh, closed academic uh, disciplines. Just forging ahead with solving problems. And it's true. Right, right. Absolutely. And so so you mentioned this other big figure, uh, kind of the, uh, I guess, progenitor of your school, Radcliffe Brown. Could you tell us a bit about Radcliffe Brown, who he was, and what made him different than Malinowski? 
Well, uh, Malinowski was a, a Polish emigre, by the way, um, very flamboyant figure. Radcliffe Brown was an Englishman, um, and he was one of the first trained anthropologists in the UK. He, he, he was an undergraduate at Cambridge where he studied what was called moral sciences. There were a couple of courses offered in anthropology by W.H.R. Rivers, who was a pioneer figure in the field. And Radcliffe Brown was the first of those Cambridge students in the immediate aftermath of World War I who was sent off to do fieldwork. And he then is part of a, a broader intellectual movement in Europe and also in Britain particularly in the 1920s, which is a conversion to Durkheim's, Emil Durkheim's School of Sociology. And it was a school of sociology which tried to use sociological theory to understand subjects as different as Australian Aboriginal rituals or gift exchange in um, non-market societies. And uh, this became the uh, intellectual inspiration for Radcliffe Brown. Um, he taught universities in South Africa, Australia, University of Chicago, um, because, of course, there are very few jobs in anthropology in Britain. Eventually, he comes back to Oxford University, to the first chair of anthropology in Oxford University, just before World War II. So by the time he retires, he's hardly had any, any chance to be there. But he develops this kind of anthropology which says you must study societies, these groups that you're studying, as if they're total institutions. Everything is connected. Everything works together. Everything is organized. And you must try and classify the societies because there are very few types of what they call tribal societies and there are very few different kinds of kinship systems. It was a, a sort of rather closed model of natural history, organicist uh, kind, kind of approach, absolutely at odds with Malinowski's idea of everything is in everything is changing, everything is in flux, and you have to focus on the individual and the choices of the individual. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. There's um, there's a dark horse kind of throughout the history of the British school, and, and you bring this out, which is French thought, right? Starts with Durkheim, which is very influential on Radcliffe Brown, and then um, the next big French uh, sociologist is, of course, Claude Lévi-Strauss um, and structuralism and some some of the other French thinkers who are associated with that. And of course, Durkheim has some, some other individuals like Mohs um, as well. So uh, moving on to structuralism, it's kind of interesting. I think structuralism to me seems like it still is focused on the group, but leaves a little bit of room open for the individual. Um, so I guess what I was wondering, what, could you tell us what, what structuralism really is and um, what, what role did it have in, in British anthropology? Well, that's a very big question. <laughs> um, Claude Lévi-Strauss is a very, um, uh, very cosmopolitan, very different kind of figure, not by choice, but by, by history. And so he, he really bursts onto the scene 
in an extraordinary way. What happened was that he was trained as a philosopher in France. Um, and then in the 1930s, he gets an invitation out of the blue from a professor in Paris who says, look, um, the French government is supporting this new university in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. We're sending young professors to teach there. Would you like to go there and teach anthropology? Because you always said you would be interested in anthropology. He's trusted. Sure. He goes out with his, with his wife, teaches at the University of Sao Paulo, and in the vacations does fieldwork among Indian groups um, in the Amazon. But it's not uh, fieldwork in the Malinovskian style or even in the Bias style. He's mostly paid by the uh, Paris Museum of Ethnography to collect stuff. He goes around collecting, but he's also he, he's enchanted, fascinated, gripped by this stuff. Goes back to France. He's still a young man in his in his thirties, and almost as he comes back, the Germans invade France. He's conscripted. The French government falls. He's uh, demobilized, and he starts looking for some kind of uh, some kind of job, some high school teaching job. But then the Germans begin the um, anti-Jewish uh, uh, moves, and he escapes to the United States. Because Claude Levi Strauss was Jewish himself, correct? He was Jewish himself, right? Uh, he goes to New York, and um, he gets to know the anthropologists at Columbia University around Franz Bauer's. And he now really, for the first time, begins to learn anthropology. And he said, uh, all the anthropology I learned was in the uh, New York Public Library. But of course, he's also mixing with Levi-Strauss, with Bauer's, with these other people, and absorbing their fascination in Native American traditions. And particularly for Levi Strauss, he was particularly interested in, in folklore, folk tales, kinship. But he also meets now uh, a famous, uh, another exile, uh, Roman Jakobson, famous linguist who later moves on to um, be a very prominent linguist at, at Harvard University. And Jakobson is a structural linguist in the tradition of uh, Saussure and introduces Levi-Strauss to this tradition. Levi-Strauss has this idea suddenly that you could apply linguistic models to the study of cultural phenomena, including rules, myths, other kinds of codes, and so on. Um, so this is the, the beginning of structures, and it goes back to France and begins to produce this new kind of um, theoretical work uh, based very largely also increasingly um, on mental productions, systems of classification, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, ways of understanding nature and understanding human groups. So he becomes caught up in this. And he begins to attract students around him and begins to publish works. And this is, um, I mean, I was a student in Paris briefly in 1962 
when Lévi-Strauss's La Pensée Sauvage appeared, which was his first major book in this tradition. And I read it at once and was just overwhelmed. I came to Cambridge, talked about it, and there were already other people there, including one of the professors, Edmund Leach, who had already been struck by it. But in the next 10, 20 years, there's a kind of movement within British anthropology um, to take on the whole Lévi-Straussian perspective. And some of the most important anthropologists of the older generation, Mary Douglas um, and Edmund Leach and Victor Turner, very, very strongly uh, influenced by by this Lévi-Straussian tradition, and began to produce this new kind of anthropology, which is very different from the old British anthropological tradition. Yeah, that's great. So, um, so we're winding up on the end of the hour. So one thing that I wanted to ask you, particularly that struck me about the book, and I think this is a, a good way to, uh, and should take, take us definitely to the end of the hour. So the last title of your chapter is Buddy, Can You Spare a Paradigm? I was wondering, that's a very kind of evocative, but maybe a somewhat mysterious chapter title. Could you uh, explain exactly what do you what what, do, what was in your mind when you wrote that title, and, and what exactly did you mean by it? Well, it's because I've been spending more and more time in America, so I've learned some of the vernacular, and uh, there's, there's that wonderful uh, sort of cliche of American life: "Buddy, can you spell can you spare a dime?" And it struck me that uh, British anthropology had lost its paradigms, um, lost the old Malinowskian paradigm, the Radcliffe Brown, Durkheimian paradigm, the Levi Straussian paradigm. These, by the end of the 20th century, these were in decline. So, where were they going to go now? And that's why I had the idea of them out begging in the streets saying, buddy, can you spare a paradigm? (laughs) And where do you think they're going? Well, I'm going to the European Association of Social Anthropology Conference in Stockholm in August, in two months' time, and then I'll be able to give you a better picture. I'll get some idea of where the young people are going, what they're doing. But one of the things that is very striking to me about the work of the younger generation is that many more of them than in the older generation are engaged in studies in Europe and studies of uh, migration, uh, uh, religious minorities, uh, ethnic clashes. And the second uh, kind of issue which a lot of them are engaged in, very strong tradition in another fascinating field, is what's called post-socialism. So looking at the old communist societies of Eastern Europe and the changes that they've undergone and how people deal with these and understand these changes, changes in family life, changes in religion, as well as the more obvious kinds of economic and political changes that have occurred. So those are are, are, are new kinds of fields. Then, of course, other kinds of issues are shared very much with American anthropologists, interest in gender, um, interest in um, uh, sexuality, and um, uh, or those kinds of 
problems of um, individual identities and changing identities, and so it's much less uh, much less present in European anthropology than American anthropology, but it's also there. It also attracts a lot of a lot of interest. Um, and then, of course, there is still a very healthy tradition of uh, fieldwork outside Europe um, in um, really all, 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 all over the world. Um, most developed, I would say, in Britain, France, and Germany. Um, but you, you, have the, you have this all over. And so there is, although comparative studies aren't as present as I would have liked to see them. Nevertheless, there is a, a large range of engagement and um, awareness of different kinds of social and political processes in, um, around the world at the moment. And that, that still is something which really, for me, is the main distinction between social anthropology and the other social sciences in Europe. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a wonderful point. And uh, you and I have, have had conversations about this as I moved my field site from Mauritania and West Africa to the United States from, from my dissertation research. And I was wondering you you're kind of if you could expand on your last point. I think it's interesting. And again, you see the tension between anthropologists and or anthropology departments, maybe should I say, and sociology departments um, in your book. And I think it is sometimes... A difficult thing even for anthropologists and sociologists to figure out well, what is the difference between anthropology and sociology. You know, I obviously have my thoughts on it, but I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that last comment and say, what do you think really are the differences? Um, and if anthropology is kind of coming home, what are the tools that anthropologists have that maybe sociologists don't? I mean, there's, of course, ethnography, but you mentioned, I think you call it something like a, a dubious copyright we have over that. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, my my kind of anthropology, the, the dominant European uh, tradition of anthropology, is really uh, a tradition within the social sciences, and so it it deals very much all the time with ideas from sociology, political science, um, economics, and those are the main interlocutors of anthropologists who are trying to understand the societies they're working in. Whereas in the United States, there was a big shift influenced largely by Clifford Goetz in the 1970s to situate cultural anthropology within the humanities, very closely linked to Oriental studies, of course, but also to um, literary studies and history and cultural history and philosophy. So, for example, ideas about language in American anthropology um, tend to be much more part of the, the training and the understanding of anthropologists, um, whereas in Europe it would be more issues of sociolinguistics that would engage people. So it's it's a different orientation, very broadly. Now, what would you say is the difference between social anthropology and sociology in Europe? Well, one of the differences that I think is, is is a key one, which is still very much there, is that the social anthropologists are always talking about 
situations in a number of different countries. Uh, whereas the sociologists are, I would say, 90% engaged with issues in their own society and in their own political systems. So anthropology has always been, for me, the sort of comparative perspective, but also in a way the comparative conscience of the social sciences. Well, and you mentioned that there's kind of the, that comparison is somewhat on the decline. And I think I think it ha- was for a while. And, and as I said, I think when I look at my generation, the people getting their PhDs today, it's coming back. But w- what do you think, how do you think that decline of comparative studies uh, impacted the discipline? Well, I'm sure it weakened a bit. Just to follow up your point, I think you're right. And I think one of the reasons is, which has struck me teaching in the United States, is how international the graduate student body is in American anthropology departments. And a lot of those graduate students are, in fact, doing fieldwork in their own countries as, as well, but they're coming and having to talk to each other and to the faculty and exchange thoughts and ideas, which is forcing them to think comparatively um, and forcing the other students to take account of very different kinds of social processes also. So that international dialogue is now very much alive in American anthropology departments. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, great. So uh, we're about at the end of the hour. So I'd like to thank you, uh, Professor Cooper, for joining us um, and the New Books Network and um, wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast on the New Books Network.